0: Welcome to Babel Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters.
1: This week on Babel, John talks to Dr. Monica Marks about Kai Said's recent actions in Tunisia. Then, John, Will, and I continue the conversation about popular authoritarianism in Tunisia and the rest of the Middle East.
0: To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Monica Marks is professor of Middle East politics at NYU Abu Dhabi. Prior to joining NYU Abu Dhabi, she was a postdoctoral research fellow at Harvard University's Weatherhead Center for International Affairs. She received her PhD from St. Anthony's College, Oxford. Monica, welcome to Babel.
2: Hi, I'm so happy to be here. When did you
0: first hear the name Kai Said? You were living in Tunisia as an academic starting in 2011. When did his name first reach your attention?
2: I first started hearing the name Khais Said in the early years after the revolution, as the newly elected Constituent Assembly began debating various constitutional articles. Kais Saeed was sometimes interviewed by local newspapers, Because he had a background as a constitutional professor. But nobody I can remember ever thought, hey, this guy might someday run to become president, let alone that this person could arguably make a coup attempt and potentially derail Tunisian democracy.
0: Did it surprise you at the end of July when he did suspend the parliament?
2: It did. And I think it surprised almost everyone, regardless of how closely they'd been watching Tunisian politics. He had a very populist discourse, making sweeping generalizations that demonized all parties on Tunisia's political landscape. To be clear, Tunisian political parties have not been very popular for the past couple of years. That's largely because of the stasis, the paralysis in parliament, and the perception that things are only getting worse for everyday Tunisians on a socioeconomic level But Caius would use this very sweeping language to demonize all parties. He started referring to them as viruses, for example. Folks who really had their ears smashed up against the ground are a lot less surprised. But I think even they didn't expect that he would go this far that quickly all at once.
0: You mentioned that there was a lot of hostility to parliament. And it seems a lot of hostility was because of a widespread perception that parliament wasn't performing very well. It wasn't performing very well economically. It wasn't performing very well in response to COVID. Why do you think that the system in which so many people had so much hope as a new way to govern Tunisia, when Tunisia had difficult governance problems, parliament wasn't up to the task of, of fixing them?
2: Since 2015, Parliament has been locked in a cycle of elite-level bargaining, where its main concern has been preserving a careful political alliance that used to be called the Partage Agreement. Basically, when Anatha and Nidatsunis found a temporary solution to their political problems back in 2016, But that agreement in the years since 2016 has really deteriorated. So there's been a constant attempt to work out a form of bargaining that allows the parties to basically avoid taking real accountability. I almost think of Tunisian political parties as a bunch of sailors who are somehow chained together (laughs) on a ship. And when the ship takes on water, almost all of them suffer simultaneously, because almost all of them have been involved in government. So it's almost as if the buck never stops anywhere. Since the 2019 elections, this problem has become much worse, because a number of actors that got elected in 2019, including Kaya Syed himself, really played on populist discontent. And have sometimes acted as spoilers to the process throwing additional wrenches in the works of this already very problematic machinery i think it should also be pointed out that parties including anatha have often been more concerned with preserving elite positions in politics for their own leaders than with really advancing a concrete agenda for the Chinese and public compounding all of these problems, is the fact that Tunisia has dealt with deep structural obstacles for the entirety of the transition. Some of those structural problems, like youth unemployment, widespread corruption, which has gotten more diffuse after the revolution, a mismatch between the skills that graduates have and what employers need, regional disparities, No, a lot of those problems existed even before the revolution, and they haven't really gotten better. So solving them really requires serious cooperation and serious forward-thinking vision.
0: And you remember and I remember there was tremendous enthusiasm in 2011 that democracy was going to be the answer to decades of autocracy in Tunisia and provide better outcomes. Is there any remaining enthusiasm for democracy in Tunisia? What is their enthusiasm for politically in the country?
2: One editorial line that I saw some of the think pieces that came out in, in the initial wake of the July 25th announcement was this notion that Tunisians somehow don't want democracy. Did they ever want democracy? Were they ever really genuinely committed to this? And the subtext was almost like, have we in the West been duped? Were we wrong to believe? And I really want to caution against that, because I think for a lot of Tunisians, one of the reasons why they were primed for that July 25th announcement, and quite positive about Kaya Saïd's potential to reinvigorate politics in Tunisia, is because they were so disillusioned by how things were going. They didn't see anything really delivering for them. The only tangible fruits of the revolution was freedom of expression, really, and and that's not edible. (laughs) They didn't see parties really competing and putting forward representative programs. So there was a section of the Tunisian public for whom Caius Syed's actions on July 25th were an opportunity to actually resurrect Tunisia's democratic process somehow. Kaya Syed came to that occasion promising a radical rethinking of government, giving people more direct representation than they ever had. And that really inspired a lot of people and and not many people at all in Tunisia have been sad to see the political parties that were in parliament <laughs> shut out. But this notion that the entirety of the Tunisian electorate has somehow turned their back on democracy is wrong. I
0: mean, there also is this issue that you have a leader who is remarkably popular, a parliament that is remarkably unpopular, and if you took a vote, you could argue that the vote would very much be in Said's favor, and that as a a leader who enjoys the confidence of the overwhelming majority of his population that that's not undemocratic. It's when you have a leader who doesn't enjoy the confidence of his population that that it's undemocratic. How do we think about the problem of leaders who aren't elected, but who have the overwhelming endorsement of the bulk of their populations?
2: Well, I think one of the really important questions is how do you measure that endorsement? How do you measure their support? Right now in Tunisia, we've had a smattering of opinion polls, none of which I think have been very reliably conducted. A lot of them have been conducted by telephone. We know that since July 25th in Tunisia, people are unlikely to tell you what they actually think about politics via the telephone, especially if they have a critique of Kaya Syed. But even if we say that Kaya Syed has, let's say, 98% of support. None of the polls have shown him that high, but let's say that he does. You have to think about creating a system of government that has sustainable checks and balances moving forward. Tunisia is a country that has experimented more than most with so-called enlightened autocracy under the years of Habib Bourguiba. Bourguiba, especially in his early years, was kind of the poster boy for enlightened autocracy. And he arguably had a lot of support. But what you do, when a leader starts making decisions that are born of corrupt personal interest or marginalize large swaths of the population, silence a lot of potentially critical voices, silence the press, those are all things that Borgiba ended up doing. So even in, in the best of circumstances, a popular enlightened despot is not a sustainable form Of government. And right now, under Kaya Said, we are far from having the best of circumstances. We're almost two months into Kaya Said's rule, one man rule, in which there are no checks and balances whatsoever. He hasn't named a government yet. Since the first week after his announcement, it became very clear, very quickly, within just days, that voices of dissent were likely to be marginalized or silenced. Even if a very, very strong majority, 90% plus of Tunisians think and feel that a kind of populist majoritarian illiberal autocracy is okay, that doesn't change the fact that it's an autocracy. (laughs) You don't get to then claim that this autocratic form of government is in any way democratic or representative.
0: Everything I've read about Khay suggests that he's an improbable populist leader he's a constitutional law professor who speaks very formal arabic he seems to have a hobby of writing in maghribi calligraphy he comes across as stiff what's the appeal to the ordinary tunisian of somebody who seems very very academic and otherworldly
2: my read on this is that most tunisians are more disillusioned with the political paralysis that had seeped into government, especially since 2019, than they are excited for Caius. Caius, to the extent that he excites, does so because he seems like an alternative. He seems like a changed figure right now. And that, I think, has a lot to do with how shabby he seems. Shabi in Arabic has this idea of you hang out in popular neighborhoods, you get your coffee from the same old unpretentious kind of hole in the wall that you always went to. He does things like that, that connects with a lot of people. He seems, I think, to a lot of people as really not bending, really not caving into elites. Kaya Syed is, in fact, a big anti-corruption campaigner. And it seems by all accounts, even from his detractors, that he's pretty genuine about that. He has this tendency to malign the entirety of Tunisia's political class as all being corrupt and all being malevolent and painting himself as a kind of savior and being seen by people as somebody who will not back down, as somebody who's reliably different. And if you're really pissed off at everything that you've seen so far, or at the bulk of it. Reliably different, even if it's leading you to nowhere or in a direction that you can't clearly see, might sound appealing.
0: TUNISIA HAS DEBT PROBLEMS. TUNISIA HAS ECONOMIC PROBLEMS. TUNISIA HAS HEALTH PROBLEMS. WHAT ROLE ARE INTERNATIONAL DONORS, INTERNATIONAL INSTITUTIONS PLAYING NOW? WHAT ROLE DO YOU THINK INTERNATIONAL DONORS, and INSTITUTIONS should be playing in the next six months and next year in Tunisia?
2: I think international donors are are cognizant of the landmines that wait. (laughs) They need to be true to their own principles and interests and objectives, while also not violating the humanitarian interest of Tunisians and not being seen as violating Tunisian sovereignty. That's very important. I think as time goes by, With every passing week and month, without any kind of roadmap back to a democratic path or representative form of government. It becomes harder for international partners to make the case that Tunisia is the first and only democracy in the Arab world. It clearly has not been since July 25th. It becomes harder to see a lot of hope in the situation if one of your Interests or objectives is in preserving a representative form of government. I can't really describe to you the return of fear and what that felt like for me, having done research and interviews in Tunisia since 2011 and before 2011. There were elements of having conversations with people there in July and August that really reminded me of the Ben Ali time. For example, people didn't want to discuss politics outside. I would often run into the situation where I'd ask people one or two questions at a cafe, on or off the record, and they, they'd lean over and whisper, you know, Monica, maybe we should go to my house or my office. This not wanting to talk about politics on the phone, a lot of self-censorship, a lot of fear, at least amongst people who are more critical of Caius or, or people who really remember what the Ben Ali years felt like All of this has a very discouraging effect, of course, on I think a lot of international partners whose enthusiasm for working with Tunisia has had a lot to do with the fact that it's their world's first and only democracy. Ultimately, I think it's quite likely that the biggest threat to Qaisa Syed's rule in Tunisia vis a vis Western donors or Western governments will come more because he seems like a force of unpredictability. He seems like a person who's going to bring a lot of economic entropy to an already incredibly fragile economic situation. But Western democracies have to be careful here in the rhetoric of Caius and and his supporters too. There's sometimes a very troubling, almost unifocal obsession with the role of the outside world and the outside world somehow always being against Caius or against us and what we're trying to do. So I think a risk in all of this for Western actors is that they don't feed into it. The biggest threat to his power and the, and the sustainability of it, it's domestic and it's, it has everything to do with people's expectations. There's a gigantic mismatch now between Tunisians' expectations and the reality of what Caius side can deliver. A lot of Tunisians I spoke to in poorer neighborhoods of the capital had really almost heartbreakingly high expectations for Caius. They would tell me things like, you know, maybe he's going to redistribute the money of these rich business people and actually give it to us, kind of like a modern day Robin Hood. I also heard people say things like, I believe Caius is going to get the police off my back or off my son's back. I don't know what concretely he said to make anybody think that, but there's a lot of projecting. Bill Lawrence, an analyst in D.C., has called it the Christmas tree effect. There's a lot of Christmas treeing going on where you hang all of your wishes on Caius. The expectations in Tunis in July and last month reminded me of how high the expectations were right after the revolution. The one big difference, though, is that now expectations tend to be framed negatively. So a lot of people want to see others hurting as much as they're hurting. This is very dangerous. There are very high expectations framed in a negative, almost retaliatory, punitive kind of way. It could go in one of a couple directions. I think if Caius side gets to protest season in Tunisia, which traditionally is in the winter, You know, December, January, and people are still hurting as much economically as they are now, and there's no clear agenda, it's very likely that they're going to turn on him. The alternative, another potential scenario that's maybe more frightening, is Caius Syed shielding himself from the anger of the people by throwing them more red meat, by finding more enemies of the people, more corrupt malevolent forces that that he can then make examples of. I think in this situation, throwing very condemnatory language into the situation risks playing into the hand of a local populist who quite probably wants to, to blame outsiders. At the same time, there comes a point where governments have to operate on a vocabulary that matches reality. And since July 25th, the word democracy has not matched Tunisian reality.
0: So you've been, as you said, going back and forth to Tunisia for much of 15 years. I'm sure you there have been moments of despair and moments of exaltation. How optimistic, how pessimistic are you about where Tunisia will be in three years, based on what you're seeing now? Is it your sense that things are going to get much better, things will get much worse? Or will things largely Muddle along?
2: I'm pessimistic. I wish I could say otherwise. I've never been as deeply concerned about the direction Tunisia is heading in since the revolution. We've seen major political crises unfold during this past decade of, of transition in Tunisia. The one that springs to most people's minds first is the 2013 Bardo crisis that was ultimately resolved with the help of a Nobel Peace Prize winning quartet. Tunisian civil society organizations. It looked like Tunisia was on the precipice back then, and they clawed themselves back through negotiation, through dialogue. And Tunisia has quite a history of doing this, edging up to the precipice and clawing their way back through negotiation and dialogue. Since July 25th, there has been precious little negotiation and dialogue, and none of it, for all intents and purposes includes Kaya Saied himself. Nothing approaching the old Nobel Peace Prize winning quartet. You know, a lot of people are wondering, will the old band get back together again? (laughs) UGTT, the Trade Union, the Employers Association, the Tunisian League of Human Rights, and the Bar Association. But the answer so far is not really. And it's been almost two months. It's hard for me to believe that Tunisia is going to emerge from this anytime soon, or with anything that isn't substantially worse than the political paralysis and infighting that it experienced before July 25th. Key democratic norms in Tunisia, norms that were young, have been demolished. (laughs) But what concerns me more than anything is the economy. The economy, more than anything, I think, led Tunisians to the point of despair where they found themselves on July 25th, and they remain at that point. Caius Syed has unveiled nothing approaching an economic plan. I think the very best case scenario, if he came out with a wonderful economic plan now and, and path back to elected representative form of government that would somehow be more efficient and solve all Tunisia's problems, we would still have at least a full year Of intense capital fear and capital flight from Tunisia, just based on the actions that Kaya Syed took in the first few weeks after the July 25th announcement. You can only imagine that for people who have much money and options right now, they're looking for any way to hedge. Even people I know who have nothing to do with business, people who are technocrats or or quite academic, nerdy, civil society nerds, some of these people. Have told me off the record, you know, Monica. I labored for ten years in this country. I really believed. I really, really hoped. But now, let me know if you hear about a job opening. And that is extremely disheartening to see. You know, you have a, a number of of highly intelligent Tunisians now starting to vote with their feet, and Tunisia needs those people. Tunisia can't afford to have more of a brain drain or a financial drain that it already has. So I wish I could tell you, John, that I'm more hopeful, but I don't see a single reason for hope since July 25th. What initially looked like a very deeply concerning moment for Tunisian democracy has turned into not just a trickle, but an entire parade of red flags. A lot of young people that I spoke to in Tunisia did not share my pessimism. One common refrain that I heard again and again from Tunisian young people was the sense that we are going to go out on the street and get rid of this guy the second that he shows signs of being a dictator. You know, I think he's already shown a number of signs that are dictatorial, but in my heart, I want to believe in what these young Tunisians are telling me. As you can imagine, 2011 was one of the most inspiring moments I've ever seen. I'll never forget the day that the Constitution passed in January 2014. There really wasn't a dry eye in the House. But I don't think it's realistic, this vision that a lot of Tunisian young people have of Tuenza, of the Tunisian people, as this kind of Teflon-proof super race that somehow completely inoculated against dictatorship because of their experience toppling Ben Ali. This idea that we toppled one dictator, we can do it again. You guys have no business being concerned about us. I sympathize with it very deeply. But, you know, never in human history has there been a group of people who are fully inoculated against the reemergence of dictatorship. There are always ladders down. Caius has reminded me of a cat stuck in a high tree, (laughs) and everybody's trying to hand him a ladder. It seems quite clear now, going on two months, that he doesn't want to get down. I think wherever we land, if we're lucky enough to get ladders down from this situation, we're going to land lower than we started, unfortunately. We're going to have the expectation problem to deal with. I don't think the prognosis looks good any way you slice it, but I hope that changes, and I hope more than anything that I'm wrong.
0: Despite a dark outlook, we'll continue to hope. Monica Marks, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Next, John, Will, and I continue the conversation about popular authoritarianism in the rest of the Arab world. Marx described Kai Saeed as an authoritarian populist. Where else have we seen this in the Arab world? You
0: know, in some ways, it's hard to think where we haven't seen it in the Arab world. We've certainly seen it in Egypt a lot. You could argue that some of the monarchs in the Arab world are authoritarian populists. They are generally very popular, but they're also in control and, and they inherited their roles. But it feels to me like there's something different about Kaysadin, and, and she put her finger on it, that he, he doesn't have the personality of a populist. He really has the personality of an outsider And it is that thirst for somebody who's not from the system, which arguably was responsible both for the fall of Ben Ali, but also for the fall of a parliament, which was never really able to get traction to resolve some of the really serious problems that Tunisians were grappling with.
3: And I think a really interesting thing about him as an outsider is that he came to power without real institutional ties that can support him. And he seems to have taken these decisions since July the 25th necessarily without the backing of key elements of the establishment. And so it's sort of remarkable that he's been able to do it and that he hasn't faced any kind of pushback from the security sector, sources of support that usually are key to this seizing of power, like we saw in in Egypt, for example.
0: And there's not a party behind him, there's not an institution behind him. He's kind of running the whole operation out of his back pocket, which you might argue is less threatening because he, he can't dominate as well. But you could argue that it also leads to a certain amount of, of chaos because he can't really lock in the kinds of institutional changes that you need to address. Tunisia is really serious economic, and governance challenges.
1: I think, John, you touched on this in your opening, but we seem to think instinctively that authoritarians shouldn't be popular, yet they often are. What are we getting wrong about authoritarians?
0: We are really committed to the idea of democracy that sounds really good, and I think that populations around the world, really, are interested in outcomes, and they're increasingly less convinced that democracy leads to the better outcomes. It's partly because people look at the Gulf and they see higher standards of living without the democratic institutions. And you can make an argument, and my friend Mike Kerb has made it, that a country like Kuwait that has a parliament operates less effectively and efficiently than some of the countries in the Gulf, like the UAE, that don't really have an independently elected parliamentary body. What we really got wrong in the Arab Spring was thinking that this was a thirst for democracy rather than results. And I think what the Arab Spring really was, was a sense that this system will never give us good results and we need a system that will. One of the tragedies of Tunisia is after tremendous enthusiasm that a more democratic Tunisia would be one that would be more inclusive and and meet more needs of the population. There really is a sense and Monica described it at some length, this total dysfunction where politics had nothing to do with reality, nothing to do with grappling with the challenges of governance, and turned into showmanship and one-upmanship and deal making. And so having parties come into it, and political institutions come into it didn't deliver better outcomes for the Tunisian people. It delivered a political game that sought to deliver rewards to people who play the game, but left most Tunisians outside of it.
3: And I think when we think about the appeal of autocrats, I think it might be helpful to think about it in different stages. At the first stage, the definition of populism is an appeal to sort of ordinary people that feel that their concerns aren't being recognized or addressed by elites. At the stage where a popular autocrat rises and gains popularity, it's because they can offer complete change. And quite often they haven't been tested. They don't necessarily have a record that can be probed and they can make wide sweeping promises that they may or may not be able to fulfill. But I think then when they're in power, and then when autocrats adopt the other aspects that we associate with autocratic systems, including complete sort of security control, as Dr. Mark said, it's really difficult to gain a sort of full understanding of how popular they truly are, because fear becomes such a big part of the equation.
0: And I think you raise an important point that how somebody is at one point is not how they are in the longer term, and and somebody may be popular at the beginning and turn more autocratic and more repressive and lose some of that support. I certainly remember when Ben Ali replaced Habib Bourguiba, his predecessor, there was elation that somebody who was old and sclerotic had been moved aside and now you can have somebody dynamic who's going to open up the system. New leaders often promise to open up the system. But after a period of one year, two years, five years, it becomes clear the system's not being opened up and you end up with a system which is static rather than dynamic. I think one of the advantages, and she was quite clear about this, is that you want checks and balances in the system. And it's hard when you have a single leader to have checks and balances.
1: Thinking of this idea of, Popular authoritarianism in stages. Do you think that there is ever going to be a point where Kaisai does something that's going to cause him to be unpopular with the base, the Shabi base that she talks about?
3: I mean, absolutely. I think Tunisia faces massive, massive problems. And I think if he isn't able to act in a way that produces tangible results, then I think that popularity could certainly disappear. Again, I think this is partly because he hasn't been tested and he's seen as sort of a change. And then after time, if he has become like other governments who have failed to address these problems, his fortunes could well change. I think it gets to what John was saying. I think this is ultimately about outcomes. Now, there could be some ways in which he has more ability to tackle some of these issues. If he does grant himself really wide-sweeping powers. He can rise above the squabbling that there's been in Parliament, the paralysis that has prevented action on some of the reforms that are needed to unlock international aid and whatnot. But whether he actually goes through with this will be the real test.
0: As you point out, his biggest advantage now is people very freshly remember the dysfunction of the parliamentary system. As that fades, and what people only remember is what he's doing right and not doing right, the idea of Kaisaid as an alternative goes away, and Kaisaed as the status quo becomes what people are considering, and, and the vote yes or no becomes about his accomplishments rather than is he better than what we had before.
1: So thinking about this idea of alternatives, is Western policy too concerned with successful democratization efforts in the Middle East, or are we not concerned enough?
3: I think you could argue that as much as Western states have talked about democratization in the region, it has largely been at a rhetorical level. And actually, there haven't been serious concerted efforts to sort of spread democracy in the region. And I think that goes back to the Arab Spring and a lot of the disappointment that a lot of people felt that the US and other Western states weren't stronger proponents of some of the movements towards democracy. But I think it's a really difficult balance for any outside power to really be pushing a political agenda. Because in somewhere like Tunisia and other countries, I think if you do this too strongly, then it can really be seen as an internationally forced endeavor that is disconnected from the ground. And so I think actually, in a place like Tunisia, the way that the US has supported civil society and has tried to bolster some of these political openings has actually been more appropriate, because it's been perhaps a bit less sort of in your face, and I think has really produced results. I mean, right after July the 25th. I wrote a critical questions about this and said, one of the reasons why Tunisia is different to Egypt, say, is because its civil society is much more advanced. And I think in part, that is because of some of the support for civil society that we've seen.
0: Yeah, but as I look around the Middle East, as I think about what happened over the last two decades in Afghanistan, it seems to me that there is a useful role that Western governments can play to encourage tolerance and pluralism. But oftentimes, you can give so much support that these institutions don't develop their own grassroots support in the country, that the rewards come from overseas rather than from among the people. I think we end up risking creating clients for our programs without actually changing the nature of governments in, in the states we're concerned with. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSS website, and you can find us on Twitter at Mideast.